0: Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. Today, we're here with Sherry Palm, the CEO and founder of the Association for Pelvic Organ Prolapse Support. We're diving into the misunderstood world of pelvic organ prolapse, shedding light on the impact of childbirth and menopause on this condition. Throughout the episode, you'll discover Sherry's personal journey, the importance of support groups, and the need for awareness around pelvic organ prolapse. All right, Let's kick off today's insightful conversation. Today I'm here with Sherry Palm. Welcome Sherry. She is the CEO and the founder of a nonprofit. The nonprofit's called Association for Pelvic Organ Prolapse Support. She is an author and an advocate. She, her book is The Biggest Secret in Women's Health. I'm excited to have her on the show today. I think pelvic organ prolapse is uh, very misunderstood. Childbirth and menopause have everything to do with pelvic organ prolapse occurring. And I'm excited to have this conversation. I think it's important to understand why we need to have a support group. So tell us a little bit about your story, how you got involved in all of this, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much, Sherry. I'm delighted to join you today and and share information with with your following as well as with ours. Uh, The journey for me is a typical prolapse patient's story. I had never heard of the condition before. I had I, I've always worked to 60. That's my norm. And you know, as a busy woman, you rush into the bathroom, you drop trial, you urinate, you wipe, pull your pants up, and get right back to work. Wash your hands, of course. And for me, I had noticed for about three months that when I wiped, I could feel like a lump down below. And after about three months went by, I was like, okay, what's up with that? What's going on down there? So I got a handheld mirror out and put it between my legs to look and see what was happening. And there was about a walnut-sized lump coming out of my vagina. And I thought, that can't be good. <laughs> I wasn't sure what it was. It looked like a tumor, but I hadn't you know, seen a lot of uh, information about vaginal tumors being common. So I wasn't really concerned. I just knew that I had to uh, check it out and see what was going on. So lucky me, my primary care practitioner was my best friend. I sent her an email, I said, hmm. Something funky going on here, and she said, "Come on over, we'll do a pelvic exam." And I met her that afternoon, and she did the examination and very matter-of-factly said, "You have pelvic organ prolapse. I will fit you with a pessary. If you're not happy with that pessary, I'll refer you to a good urogynecologist." And I thought, "Okay, I've got no clue what she just said. None of that made any sense to me." And the backstory before that, I was diagnosed with MS at the age of thirty, and wheelchair-bound short time frame. And so I was extremely proactive to try and get back to balance because I didn't have time to be in a wheelchair. I I didn't think that was an option for me. So uh, I spent a few years figuring out my body, got back to balance, I'd never been in a wheelchair. And moving forward, I thought, not just with the MS, but all my women's health needs, I had to make sure I was on top of So I did all the right stuff as far as uh, the exams we're supposed to have, breast cancer prevention, steps, uh, cervical exams, you know, the whole nine yards. So, to be diagnosed with a condition in my mid 50s that I'd never heard of was unsettling to say the least. So, I hit Dr. Google, like everyone does, to figure out what pelvic organ prolapse is and what it meant. And I was shocked to read that at that point in time, uh, this was in 2007, that there were 3.3 million women in the US that had prolapse. And I thought, well, how is it possible I've never heard of this condition if it's that common? Now the stat's 50%. You'll see 40% in some studies, but you're seeing 50% all the time now in studies for prevalence. So I knew within two weeks, I just kept digging for more information and just self-educating like I did with EMS. And and I knew within two weeks said this was my path. I can't tell you how I knew that. It's fortunate I didn't know how long it would take to engender some juice in this space. But I just knew this was where it was supposed to be. And and it just felt like a shoe that was fitting really comfortably. So my first thought process was get information into the hands of women, women across the board. And I know I'll write a book. I had no clue what I was getting into. I know know no backdrop in writing books or articles. I had a really good English teacher in seventh grade. That's the extent of the backdrop. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll get the book written and I'll, I'll fan it out and then we'll, we'll know about this condition and it's going to advance women's health, you know, and create awareness of this condition. None of that worked out quite the way I had planned. So I was about 15 months into marketing my first edition of my first book and the light bulb came out. If you want to really re- reach women effectively, help them effectively, you should found a nonprofit. I had no backdrop in nonprofit sector either. <laughs> I was thinking with Went off down that rabbit hole, and fortunately for me, here in Milwaukee, uh, Marquette University has got a great program, pro bono program, to help people that want to found a 501c3 build the base. So I applied and was accepted, and so they kind of guided me through that path. And then I found the nonprofit, the Center of Milwaukee, which offered classes in nonprofit, and I was down there so often they said I should just get a job down there because I lived down there all the time, taking more classes. They were priceless in the journey. And so then I just kind of moved forward. I founded the nonprofit and women found us. I learned social media, building websites. The same thing anybody else says, started an organization, does. And over time, it has amplified amazingly. And this is, women, the nonprofit sector is kind of unique in how it works. You know, you're not selling anything. You're providing support and guidance for people regarding whatever your area of expertise is. And so what I learned more than anything else was how priceless women to women communication is regarding our health. That's the secret sauce. That is absolutely the secret sauce. So so we, we built a closed Facebook-based support forum. We now have 26,000 women in that space. And there's 183 countries represented in that space, which is to me, that's that's the amazing part is the global energy that we've cooked up with this energy. And this is women helping women, women sharing their stories, women asking questions of each other. There are some practitioners in there as well. We've got quite a few PTs in there. We've got some urogynecologists in there, some gynae's in there, nurse practitioners. But the practitioners come in to observe patient voice and to learn the reality of what quality of life impacts these patients' experience. So that's absolutely our goal, gold. And obviously, we've got other tools that we provide to women. POP information tool that we provide, but the patient voice piece of the puzzle is the most important piece of the puzzle. So it just kind of went page by page and brick by brick, and we are where we're at now. So haven't quite eradicated the stigma of vaginal health yet, but that's on our our to do list. So bit by bit, we'll get there.
0: So I have a question for you. So do you feel like, you know, I I love it that you're in that whole support piece for women, because I do think they need an avenue and a venue and a way to actually communicate and talk about these things, because that's Mm -hmm. of such value. This The whole listening piece, I think, is part of what's missing, actually, in our medical arena right now, when, you know, you're seeing a physician for only five or 10 minutes or something of that nature you can't even get to the bottom of well what do you mean pelvic organ prolapse you don't even really understand it mm-hmm. but how how do you know we go about helping our primary care physicians actually understanding what pelvic organ prolapse is when you know we had i don't know if you saw the study Von Wong study in 2019 you know i think basically they had interviewed 150 primary care physicians you know, they were internists and literally they really didn't even know all the pelvic health statistics they couldn't even identify. I think 9% of them identified, you know, a pelvic organ prolapse correctly, 38% overactive bladder correctly, and 34% UI correctly. So, so it seems like there's this huge disconnect that's happening. Do you, do you see that in those women's voice with you?
1: Absolutely. You are 100% spot on. This is one of our objectives on our, on our mission page. The shortfall in POP curriculum to all fields of practice that provide pelvic exams is huge, 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 huge. And I have been chasing down medical schools for years, years, trying to get in, to provide a presentation for practitioners to help them understand the just the basics, the bare basics. If they don't understand those basics that there's five types and these the basic symptoms. How on earth can they possibly diagnose it correctly? I have no doubt that women are referred from their PCPs and their gynecologists on a routine basis to urology when they're complaining of incontinence and then they're put on medications, which is not even close to solving the problem. So the, the shortfall there is huge and yes, I see it all the time. And patients complain about it all the time. And what we actually started telling our, our following is that they, they would go in for a pelvic exam and they, they strongly suspect they have pelvic organ prolapse. Because again, Dr. Gould has advised, this is what prolapse is and this is what it does and these are their symptoms. And then they go to their, their gynecologist for their routine exams. And when you are laying in the supine position, those organs flop back into their normal position and you, it's not really so pronounced visually for practitioners who have not been appropriately educated about prolapse. So they'll say, they'll, the women will sometimes say, well, would you check to see if I have pelvic organ prolapse? And then the gynecologists do, or PCPs or whatever sector they do. And they say, yes, you got a little bit of prolapse going on, but it's not that bad. Go home, do your Kegels. Come back and see me in a year. And, and we hear this all the time, all the time. So we would advise women now, When they say that to you, ask them to screen you standing up. And when the the practitioners are willing to do that, and it's just a hand palpation, obviously there's no speculum involved. When they're willing to do that, their reaction is typically, oh, now they see the prolapse. So that gravity feed, when you're standing up and and they're doing a, a palpation exam, they can literally feel that bulge coming out of your vagina. And it feels much bigger than how it looked when you're laying down on your back. So we get feedback from patients on them doing that and and how their doctors reacted and so on. But, and I actually, I built with a a team of urogyns, a couple of researchers and a PT years ago, probably about six or seven years ago, we built a, just a short questionnaire for practitioners to use to indicate that they should do a standing screen. And then life got in the way and projects popped up then it kind of got set on the wayside. <laughs> so it's in the archives here, someplace. But the bottom line is, is step one is just getting basic information about prolapse and those symptoms to practitioners. The misconceptions are abundant and it's, it's assumed that this is a, a mature woman's condition. Those that do know about prolapse, it's a mature woman's condition. And that is such a falsehood. It's such a falsehood. So the majority of our patient following are in their mid thirties to mid forties, but we have a significant following that is under the age of 30 in our spaces as well. And we also have women that are in their teens who have never been pregnant who have prolapse, which are the Elder's danlos sector, so that those tissue integrity problems. So yeah, there's on the curriculum side, there's a lot of work to be done yet. A lot of work. So I'm hopeful as... Vaginal health apartment goes large, we eradicate the stigma of vagina, um, and we talk more about prolapse more openly, then the other walls and barriers will break down and we can actually get the information where it's supposed to be in the first place. So it's a work in progress. It's going to take more time.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like so many of these women are actually in their reproductive years that we're talking about right now. And let's just overview why that would be. So you know, you have people having babies, right? And babies happen to be an indication or a time frame when pelvic organ prolapse can happen. So really we need the education earlier, not just menopausal people or people, you know, that are entering into the later years. We actually are seeing that, you know, I think there was a study that said, you know, after baby, you know, eight to 10 years is like when this stuff shows up. But if we intervened earlier, so people at least knew what they were looking for or knew even how to self-check. So, you know, what what do you think about, you know, this whole idea of a woman just even self-checking? Because I think that's an important piece, too. You know, there needs to be a responsibility back to us, right? To be like, Mm -hmm. oh, these are the things you're looking for. So if you could say to a woman, you know, I mean, we know this, you know, after you have a baby you know, a lot of times the cervix and the uterus doesn't move back up for a good 12 weeks, get into yeah. position. So we're not really worried about it too early early on in the first three right. months, but, but we are still, you know, in the PT world, which I'm in, we're still checking people, right? And we're watching them and making sure they're progressing. But anything that we see that happens over that 90 day period, then we're like, hey, we should be intervening. So how could we have that conversation You know, without scaring people, you know, because I know some people don't even want to talk about it because they're like, oh, you're going to scare people. I'm like, no, like we're educating, we're teaching, right? So tell me from your perspective, maybe with that childbearing years, like how should we be talking about it?
1: I really believe it. And this, I'm flashing back now to a conversation I had. I gave a speech at a research conference a few years back and one of the researchers asked me at lunchtime, why do you want to scare women like that? And I wanted to just smack her but it's just smack her upside. It's like, really? You're in research? You no. Know? So the, the reality is, is I think that this is something that should be included within the whole scare factor aside, senate aside. During childbirthing classes, get ahead of the curve. And you just, it, it's how you format what you're sharing with them. You don't have to give them all the nitty gritty, deep down, aggressive details about the whole big picture. But I think it's imperative that women know that that this is a possibility that this might happen after the fact. I mean, you you don't, when women go in for examinations, and I'm so far removed from my 20s, I don't even know what they say to women in their 20s in their exams anymore. But you wouldn't say to them, if you you notice a, a, a sore spot in your breast or like a lump, don't worry about it. Still, so big deal. You would never say that, you know. It's like all aspects of women's health are significant, and that ahead of the curve piece of the puzzle is so imperative. I'm I, just reflecting on those women that are in their their teens that have never been pregnant, that have prolapse because you have Eller's Danlos syndrome. I mean, these women they suffer horribly for years before they even are diagnosed with Eller's Danlos because few doctors know about that condition as well. I think if we actually started. With, and I don't know that it has to start with women when they're um, in their teens going in for public exams. However, if a woman is saying to her practitioner in her teens that I'm peeing in my pants, there's your flag. There is your flag. And you have, a, to me, a medical duty to take it to the next level, the next conversation, whether it's a, a primary care or, or a gynecologist or a physical therapist. You're all right in there in the nitty gritty. You know, and this, this is your area of expertise. And so at that point we need to introduce this topic. And, and if there is no concerns in the teens, as women get into their twenties and they're starting to explore getting pregnant or they are pregnant, I think we're doing women a great disservice if we're not broaching this topic and say, okay, here's what happens after you have the baby. Here's what's things to look out for before you have the baby. Here's things to be aware of after you have the baby recognize that until the three month mark, you are healing. You've had a baby, you are healing. And so there are things that your body's going to be going through that are natural as part of that process. But once you get past those three months, if you're still leaking urine, if you're having pain with intimacy, if you're having fecal incontinence, these are all markers that you need to be aware of. There might be something going on And let's just have a conversation about public organ prolapse. And you may not have this issue, but you may. And if it is something that's happening with you, the sooner you address it, the better your life is going to be. It's going to continue to progress if you don't address it. So it just makes sense to talk to your practitioner about it, ask those questions. And I think it's it's really hugely important too for like in your your scenario for the PTs, when they're doing these evaluations for women that are, they are not at the three month point yet to bring the topic up, just bring the topic up and and help them understand that, that this condition impacts 50% of women. So we're just playing it safe here. We're just evaluating to play it safe and there could be nothing going on there. And that would be like, awesome. But in case there is, we're getting it early. I think one of the things you mentioned
0: before is some of these symptoms. And then I think, you know, I, you and I've talked about this before, but I think that pressure or that bulging piece, I think that's another thing that, you know, just sort of thinking, oh, you know, some of my moms will come in and they'll be like, oh, well, you know, I don't feel any pressure or bulging. Oh, till the end of the day. And you and I are like, oh, there you go. So, so sometimes I think they get in there with their practitioner. I'm just saying they're OBGYN, you know, Maybe they're at a three month check or something's going on and, and, oh no, I'm really doing pretty good. And they kind of forget that whole idea that, hey, oh, I was just tired, but those are signals to you and me, right? Like uh, that right. pressure, that might be the first sensation a woman ever feels, right? For a pelvic organ prolapse is right. oh, this downward pressure after I, you know, I'll even have it after some of my women train really hard. You know, like uh, physically, you know, maybe they've been weightlifting or crossfitting or doing different things. And all of a sudden they'll be like, oh, well, at the end of my training, you know, of those three days a week, and maybe they train five days a week, at the last day of the week, they're like, man, I feel so much downward pressure. And I'm like, ah, oh. uh-huh. to me, I, I think those are signals, right, for you and I too, to help even women. actually feel like, oh, well, I'm really fit, you know, like I'm really strong and yes, you are fit and yes, you are strong. The problem is you don't realize, right, that these muscles have a fatigability, right? And that fatigability as the day progresses, especially if you're carrying kids or hooking and, you know, car seats and breastfeeding and all of that, right? So I think the key, right, that you're explaining to us is that this pressure or this bulging, yeah, it might not happen when you and I roll out of bed in the morning. We feel good. We're like, yeah, we're ripping and roaring. And then all of a sudden, as our day progresses, these things show up. And that's the signal, right, that we need to intervention because that fatigability, right, is happening and we're not getting, you know, that stability present. I love that you brought up the lows, down lows too, because I think people, you know, have to understand that that deeper layer of the floor, which is the endopelvic fascia, it helps to hold up all that musculature and it's attached to the abdominal muscles, so then if we don't have that support, that does give us that down pressure or that. So it's not our that imagination by the end of the day, like, you know, maybe our bottom feels heavy, right? Or our back feels heavy or our floor right, feels right, heavy. Right. What, is that in your wheelhouse? Do you see that with your support group? Like, tell us what they're talking about.
1: We do. I'm gonna bounce back for just a second here on something I forgot to mention with the last question. For self-check, for self-exam, Okay. Handheld mirror. End of the day, like you're saying, as the day goes on, it gets worse and worse. Whether you're feeling the the vaginal or rectal pressure or not. End of the day, if you've had babies, take that handheld mirror, go in the bathroom, lock the doors, so it'll get interrupted in the process. And standing up, take a look to see if there's any tissue bulging out of your vagina. And it doesn't matter if it's a tiny bit of tissue that's still prolapse. The more types of prolapse you have, and there are five types. The greater the degree of severity, there's four grades of severity. So how much bulges out depends on how many kinds of prolapse you have and and how severe it is. So even if it's just like a little bit peeking out, it's like, okay, that's a flag. That's a flag. Then you need to see your practitioner and say, guess what I noticed? Yes, the agile pressure, rectal pressure, huge deal. We hear about that a lot in our space. And it's really important bouncing over to the fitness activity side of the equation. And I'm a fitness junkie. Exercise five days a week. I I max out my weight at 10 pound handhelds. And we do discourage women from marathon running or jogging because hard foot strike does, has been validated in studies to be a risk factor for pelvic organ prolapse. Uh, On the weight side, when you're lifting weights, I think it's important to be aware of that pelvic cavity. What it is, what it does. Understand that pelvic floor. Understand how those those organs below are supported by that structural tissue. And if you're not supporting that structural tissue, you're doing yourself harm. So if you're if you're lifting, even if you've got converse, that's heavy weight. <laughs> this heavy weight. It's not like you've got a control up here. You're they're wiggling around and doing their thing, you know. So it's it's so important to to recognize that if you're doing weight bearing type activities and interabdominal pressure, you need to counterbalance that. So you're talking a pessary internally, you're talking a support garment externally, maybe both, depending on if you're a CrossFit person, probably could use both to kind of help maintain that support there and, and cause less weakness occurring in that structural pelvic floor. Everybody's different. And it's so important for women to recognize that someone who does CrossFit three days a week, five days a week that's a fitness person. If you're the average mom at home, you are not in the same structural space as that person is. And so thinking that that you can do some of these activities and not do yourself harm is something you need to really give deeper thought to, to make sure you're protecting uh, everything in that pelvic cavity effectively. So um, I've got high respect for athletes and I recognize as I've aged, what I could do at 35, 45, 55, 65, I'm 70 now. What I can do now, how I, I support my pelvic floor is totally different. Once those estrogen levels start to drop, estrogen loss hugely impacts muscle tissue strength and integrity. And so that will change your game as you move forward. And don't think it's because you're getting weaker or wussier. That's just our metabolism. That's our, our estrogen. our hormone levels. It's all part of the equation and we have to respect all those pieces of the puzzle.
0: I think that's why after labor and delivery, it's so important too, right? Because our hormonal pattern is off and it's different. One of the things we're talking through Sherry here is then, you know, some of these changes hormonally, right? Will definitely affect the floor's ability. And that's one of the things we see right after labor and delivery, right? We have so many hormonal changes and, and we, because of that, then the floor's tendency to rebound quickly is is not as great, just like you're talking and you know, as we get to perimenopause menopause, where there's less estrogen on board as well, you know, we get texture changes to muscle tissue, maybe muscle tissue that used to have, you know, greater endurance doesn't have it because I don't have these hormonal patterns on board like they were before. So I think that's an important thing for people to remember too is that, you know, right after a baby, you know, thinking, oh, you know, I should go out and get back to running, you know, at three weeks after having a baby, it like, just like you brought up about heel strike. I think it's an important piece to remember with heel strike because that's heavy load and a weight bearing position. And I think exactly like, I love it that you said, get your mirror, stand up, you know, look at it at the end of the day, or like I tell a lot of my, you know, higher level athletes. You look at it after you trained because you're trying to see, like, what did that do? Like, how far did you push the envelope? Maybe that means that last set you did, it was just too much yet. It doesn't mean that in four weeks, you might not be able to add more on as you get more endurance, but maybe right today, I shouldn't be jumping from here all the way to here. I have to go slower right to get it, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. after baby. So I love the fact yep. that you brought up about the hormonal piece, because I think that's a huge people piece of the puzzle that people kind of forget that our hormones have everything to do with the response pattern of muscle tissue. And, you know, I think that's the crazy part about, you know, labor and delivery that they're saying these pelvic organ prolapses don't show up for five to 10 years but it didn't mean that they weren't in the working, right?
1: Right, you know, exactly, exactly. And it, Just because it's not discovered until five years after you've had that baby doesn't mean it hasn't been cooking all this time, you know, and all of those things that you do doing, just your, your normal everyday patterns. Like I said, the whole toddler thing, when you're picking up a, a 35 to 55 pound child to put them in the car, or put them in, in the car seat or, or put them in the bathtub or wherever, That's all heavy lifting. And are you contracting your pelvic floor when you're doing that? No, you're not. You should be, but you're probably not because no one tells you you should be doing it. So um, the the information that should be shared with women post-birthing could really use a considerable expansion, really. And
0: I'm just going to plug pelvic PT here really fast because... I mean, I feel like we're a huge piece of that. I mean, we are musculoskeletal experts and literally what happens is that we can help teach you how to manage your intra-abdominal pressure. And a lot of times it's with what? Using our vocalizations and our voice, right? Because that, you know, that just expelling air at, you know, you watch tennis players play, right? And they hit the ball and they have that nice, you know, coming out Mm -hmm. and you know, then what am I doing? I'm getting that nice uplift of my floor. and blowing that air out. I'm giving some support inside that container, at least, especially early on, you know what I mean, lifting and carrying our kiddos and hauling things around. So I definitely Mm. believe the integration of all of this together is what's so important. And I'll tell people, Hey, we check you, you look great, super. Maybe we don't need to see you for a little while, but then we're going to keep in your life, right? So that we can keep you healthy long-term. I think That's the beauty of it is that you want somebody on your team who can help you see, you know, what's what's going on. So you're not by yourself, not knowing. I know a lot of my moms will come in and they're scared. Right. And we're like, no, no, you're looking good. Here's the things you're going to do. Here's how you're going to move forward. So in your support group, how do you help women understand like, You know, hey, you are training, like maybe you need other people on your team. What are you what are you doing and saying with your support group?
1: We don't get into the fitness side of it too deeply intentionally because I am no expert in fitness by any means, you know. So we do encourage them to think practically about what fitness activities they're engaging in. Recognize that there are certain fitness activities that are more user friendly than others. We we don't tell women don't do this, don't do that because every woman's needs are different, every woman's desires are different, you know. So so we don't go there, but we have had a lot of women come into our space that were marathon runners, and runners love to run. The endorphins are awesome, you know, and and, and we recognize that, but we we. We discourage talking about marathon running. I mean, we let them do it, but we kind of discourage them encouraging others to do it because if you're not in that fitness frame to do it without doing yourself harm, you're gonna do yourself harm, that's the bottom. So we, we have conversations, women have come in that were marathon runners and they they are, they're are they have prolapse now and they're all upset because they have prolapse now. And, and some have had babies, some have not had babies. And don't get me started on, on women that are pregnant running. Oh, my God. <laughs> that just makes me insane that women are pregnant and they're running. It's, oh, what are you doing? It's, it's one of those things where they come in and they're like, well, I've got this prolapse now. And how do I address it? And, and my doctor says, I, sh- I need to stop running for a while. But I don't want to stop running for a while. And typically, they will, will tell them, is, you know, other women that have been runners will say, you, know, you need to think about this. And then they want to go back to running. so they do. And then they come back in with the pull being worse. And so it's so critical that a huge shortfall in fitness is not addressing this from that support structure side of the, of the equation. It's like, okay, if you're going to run, internal support is a big deal. External support is a big deal. Knowing how to breathe, like I said, those, those things that the PTs teach you. I think everybody that's a runner should see a PT before they even think about running because the basics that you can provide for them to help themselves is a big deal. And I also think a, a huge shortfall is that physical therapy is not considered an adjunct to women's wellness from the beginning of the journey. Uh, there is there's no one else that does what PTs do the way you do it. You know that certainly the other fields of practice have got some understanding of the pelvic floor structure, but you're the muscle experts. You're you're the ones that this is your Wheelhouse, and so it's extremely unsettling to me that there is no PT evaluation post birthing. That's just like a no brainer, and and rest assured, I'll be on the hill at some point lobbying for that to be in place because it's it's critical. It's critical, but um, it's not just a matter of of post childbirth. It's there should be, I, I think, a base a base understanding of women's bodies at the onset of our journey into adulthood, you know, and, and so I don't know that what magic it would take to make that happen. But I I really think that we're missing a big, big important part of, of women's wellness by not acknowledging this more effectively than we are. So,
0: so Sherry, I'll just share with you a technology that we happen to use, and it's been kind of nice for some of my higher level athletes because they might think, Oh, I'm doing a really great job with this. I am a marathon runner. And then what we can do is we'll actually use our real time ultrasounds peripubically through their belly, and we can show them in standing how long their endurance is. So this is kind of what we're doing. So I might have a postpartum mom. I, I actually have had somewhere what we did is we start training them and whatever sport they want to do. And then all of a sudden they'll. Say, you know, I'm teaching them how to know what their fatigue ability is in their floor. So if their endurance isn't strong enough, do you know what I mean, for two hours of whatever it is they're doing? So then we slowly teach them. Okay, that's the proprioception or the sensation. Let me show you what it looks like through the okay. abdominal ultrasound. So and then they realize, oh my gosh, it is fatigued. They see that they can't contract against gravity. Or they'll see that their bladder actually will tube because it's starting to fall down because they're getting too fatigued. So we rest them sometimes for, you know, maybe two to five minutes, see if the muscles will re-recruit again, the nerves, everything reboot. And then we start adding on minutes to teach them, oh, let's see how many minutes we can add to whatever it is you want, you're, you're, you know, you want to do. So you, I'm like you, I don't tell people Almost. No. I, I I don't say no. I say, okay, here's what we do. We use technology, right, to teach the body and train it so it sees what it should do and how it should do it, right? And then and then if something is tubing or looking odd or off, then we help that whole system sort of reset so we know how the bladder should look. Do you know what I mean? On a contraction. Yeah. If that bladder yeah, looks love- like a tube instead of looking like a rectangle, we're like, mm-hmm. hey, okay something's off. So I think this is the beauty of like having some of this technology in the space, utilizing pelvic PT as a a significant part, but integrating with some, a group like yours that has this many women, do you know what I mean? Together, because I think that shares the understanding is we're not saying no to people. We're saying, Hey, there's a way to actually teach this, to do it. And I want to share with you just really quick from our perspective, because I know you speak to so many women about all this, but when you have an endopelvic fascia that's still intact, it will then, when you're actually testing in the pelvic floor, you will actually feel the urethra sphincter move north when they pull in their abdominal muscles. So then we know that the endopelvic fascia, even though maybe it's not as efficient as we want, maybe maybe Mm -hmm. it did sustain some tearing but we feel the tube of the bladder actually move north as they pull their belly muscles in. They're not doing a pelvic floor contraction. Yes. They're just facilitating their abdominal deep, internal oblique and transverse abdominis. They're lightly pulling it in. If you feel the tube of that move up, then we're like, hey, endopelvic fascia is still efficient enough Now we know we need that their core, so their abdominal muscles to be more powerful, to give them more endurance because that endopelvic fascia goes right to the bladder, goes right to the uterus, goes right to levator ani to do what? To lift and hold everything up. So Uh if we can give them more endurance out of this core container, right, then you and I can do what? Protect this POP. You know, Mm -hmm. decrease Mm -hmm. its symptomology with the higher level function that they want to have. So I right. think people understanding that there's this whole other connection, you know, we're always talking about the core with everybody, but maybe helping people understand what the core actually, I'm talking abdominal muscles here, actually mm-hmm. have to do with the floor so directly and that we can test it and we can know whether it's working efficiently.
1: The, the, that's, that's all fascinating stuff, you know, and, and and having that kind of information put into terminology that is lay terminology completely start to finish to help them get the big picture is that's priceless gold That is priceless gold.
0: So are, you and I are gonna work and, on this together both.
1: Yes, yes. I thought that was like okay send me this and send me this and this and we're talking about this and yeah so my head my nose going how those synapses are firing. So all good stuff. And I love my only Disappointment with ultrasound is it's nowhere near utilized as much as it should be, you know? And, and that's on the pract- on the physician side as well as, uh, I mean, your guidance, as well as on the PT side. I want to see that in every office, you know, that's where we need to get. So that, yeah. that, that, that tooling is priceless, it's just priceless. Well,
0: the, the other thing, Sherry, I think I too, just to share with you is that one of the things just having people do like a deep diaphragmatic breath pattern and then exhalation, we can actually see whether the bladder moves up and down with the breath pattern of the diaphragm. So mm-hmm. if that a bladder, if we don't see it on the screen moving just with their deep inhalation, then we're like, okay, what's going on? You know, how come that connection isn't clear? Or maybe the cl- connection's just a little stiffer than it should be or not as efficient as it should be. So I know we're hoping as well that we can get these ultrasound machines down less in price, so that we can actually have them in so many offices all over the world that literally, because I'm telling you the visual spatial component is powerful stuff with what you and I are talking about, at least with pelvic yes. organ prolapse.
1: Absolutely, I'll be able to, to, to see that it, it's to, it makes the light bulb go on. Yeah. Actually seeing understanding that this is what's happening here. Having that PT explain to you, this is exactly what's happening here. Watch this, now watch it again. Now watch it again, you know, and then it sticks. Okay, now I get it. Now I get it. Huge, huge.
0: So Sherry, let me just ask you, this is kind of scooping around to the business side of it. You know, what is one of the most important things you think you've learned about yourself as being a CEO and founder of something like this? I mean, having 26,000 people all over the world and 183 uh, countries, I mean, it's incredible. You know, tell us about maybe the things you've learned about yourself as a businesswoman, someone following your dream, somebody believing that you can actually make a
1: difference. Well, first of all, the most important thing to, to recognize is how much you don't know. At the top of the list, recognize how much you don't know and how much more you have to learn. And, and listen to all the experts and brain pick all the experts, build those relationships with the experts because they're the ones that are going to. Have fill in the dots for you. It, it's a continual journey. You have to have, you have to be persistent. You have to have faith. You have to understand that there's going to be days where you're just like, oh, I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired. And then the next day there's that person that says something to you that's like, I shouldn't get said, you know, and then you're just right back on the the starting line again. It's like, okay, it, it's it's all good. So understanding that every woman's journey is unique, that you have to be careful and cautious what you say to people because it's easily misinterpreted, that if you're in it for the money, you're in it for the wrong reason, (laughs) get a different career. Let's see what else. I guess just the most, figure out which part of your business brings you the most joy. For me, if I had to pick one thing that I could do all day every day that would make me just be in heaven, it would be talking to women one-on-one. That's what I love the most. Unfortunately, when you've got everything else cooking, you don't have time to do that. So you have to just keep on plugging away with the work part of it. And you have to have faith because without that, you're not going to move mountains. And, And I really thought, In the beginning of my journey, I was so sure, because I was so blown away by this condition that it it exists and I'd never heard of it, I was so sure that I would get the information out there to women and then everything would change so quickly. I'm 15 years into this and I'm still like, okay, so when can we say vagina out loud? When's that going to happen? You know, it's so frustrating to me that there's still so much stigma attached to all of this the space into pelvic organ prolapse specifically, I, I don't know that I'll ever figure out the secret sauce to the stigma part of the equation. It, it makes me crazy every day. I mean, I walk around my house going, vagina, 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 vagina. And the guys in my house think I'm a total nutbag, you know? <laughs> it's like, okay, get over it. You know, it's okay. I, I I believe that they know more about pelvic organ prolapse than the majority of women that I know because they've heard me flat out about it so much. Just have faith. Have faith, stay the course, and all your time frame that you've got worked out in your head, throw it out the window because it's not going to happen that way. And and just continue to do what brings you joy and move the needle forward.
0: So, you know, you brought up before, you know, we were kind of talking through the things that a lot of times if someone sees you with a pelvic organ prolapse, hey, you know, you're, you might be sent to pelvic PT, you might be, you know, given a pessary, or you might be talking through surgical procedure if it's really severe. So when you talk about that, talk about, you know, because I like the fact you brought up compression garments and I like the fact that you brought up some, the pessary business. And so just tell us a little bit like, you know, that's a middle management road, right? Before you get to a surgical procedure, you know, and, and I do think, you know, it's worth our time frame to just talk about that for a minute of what you feel like about pessaries and, and, and you know, maybe garments before you move into surgery.
1: That's a huge piece of the puzzle. Huge piece of the puzzle here. I really feel strongly that it's valued for all women to see a physical therapist first, when she's first diagnosed, that should be step one. Well, step one's getting to the gynecologist or PCP to be diagnosed with POP, that's step one. But then your next step is to see a physical therapist because their knowledge base and their, this area of expertise that they have is so diverse, it's so broad, it's so full, They're the ones that can help you understand the sensations that you're experiencing. This is, this is, this part, this muscle doing this, and this is, whether it's your core or your floor, they help you dissect all that stuff in your head to make the correlation between when I do this, I feel this. And so in your lifestyles and behaviors, which are, that's your, a huge part of your whole life is your lifestyle and behaviors. Even if you have coexisting conditions to help you figure out all those layers and put those puzzle pieces into position. Then if you have, if you use alternatives for two years, and we, that's what we see women are fitted with a pessary. If they fit it with a pessary from their their gynecologist or PCP, they use that pessary for two years, usually before they move on to surgery. And, and that's a good thing because you're using that time to understand your body, which is priceless post-surgery. If you do have surgery, just because you have surgery, does that mean that you'll, you won't need a PT down the road? Realistically, we're looking at maintenance for life in whatever form works for you. You have surgery, your body continues to age. Here we go. Right here. I have watched, I have, lucky me I get to be a guinea pig because I know the people that I know in industry. I've experimented with a zillion different devices and tools for prolapse. And and I tell people when they come to me and they say, well, I've got this, this new tool. What do you think about it? You know, would you test it for us? I tell them straight up, I don't sugarcoat. If I don't like it, that's what you're going to hear. And I'll tell you why. And we go from there. So the bottom line is what tool each woman likes is going to vary. As an example, I experimented with a device that many women love. That's like a game. It's a PC strengthening device. It's like a game. I don't do games on my phone. I've never done them. You know, I've never liked them. I do have a device. I use my phone for that. I love. Everyone's needs are different, and so as you experiment with different tools and you find out what works for you and what doesn't work for you, then you're pretty much good moving forward. But as that estrogen level drops again, your pelvic floor is going to go through some changes. And so going back to see your, your physical therapist three years after you've seen them or five years after you've seen them or 20 years after you've seen them, those are all pivotal steps to take. And you understand your needs better than anyone else does. So when, when you feel there's a need to, to go back for an evaluation again, you go back and then, then they say, okay, well, we have now this new device that can measure this and measure that. And let's just recheck that to see where you're at in real time. And then your advice comes into the picture. So uh, I, I'll confess, I wanted surgery yesterday and that's what I did. I work a 60. I didn't really, at that point in time, I didn't really know anything about prolapse. It's a basic stuff that I had, I had researched to write that first book with. So I knew all the basic stuff about prolapse, but I didn't understand. I didn't see a physical therapist. I wasn't referred to a physical therapist, you know? And so I didn't have that option. And if I would have had that option, I might have used a pessary for longer or tried other things that a PT would recommend. I try that would have changed my whole path, but I worked to 60. I, I was on the road a lot. I just, was like, okay, I'll try the pessary. And I had it for two weeks and it fit well. I had no discomfort. I learned relatively quickly how to insert and remove. I cleaned it. I took it out every night so my tissues had a chance to breathe as opposed to in it in for, you know, a longer period of time. And it worked well for me. However, it was one more thing to do. It's kind of like putting contacts in. It's one more thing to do. Putting contacts in after you get used to it, that's like a minute. Boom, they're in. But it's one more thing to do. And so my typical morning was get up let the dogs out, go to the bathroom, let the dogs back in, feed the dogs, exercise, take a shower, eat some breakfast, throw a face on, do my hair. It's one more thing to do. Time <laughs> for one more thing to do. So I knew relatively quickly that I want to move on to surgery. But did I really know that? Because of the options I was given, that's the way I, I went, the direction I went. And even my urogynecologist said, and she's awesome. I just love her. Even she said, you know, we went through the whole evaluation. I, I was grade three. I had, at that point in time, we thought it was two, a cysto and a rectal. It turns out I had a huge enteral seal as well, which she found when she went in for surgery. So, and they were all fixed. But even after her evaluation, and she took her time with me, it was a good hour-long evaluation. She said, okay, so here's the deal, Sheriff. She says, I know your type. You know, you you you're... Mm-hmm going all the time. So she says, you go home. And, you know, this was in January where I had the evaluation. You know. go home, you know, and Brig will be here before you know it and go out and play in your flower beds. And, and, you know, maybe read a book in the backyard and come back and see me in the fall and then we'll talk surgery. And I'm like, Tooties, no, what we're doing fixed me yesterday. <laughs> you know, I've got work to do. And so then she's like, okay, I get it. You're that type of person. Okay. And she said, I can also tell that you're the type that's a fitness junkie. So I'm telling you now. 12 weeks, no fitness exercises. Nothing. You speak good because I want things I do to stick. So, you know, I I talk the talk, but I didn't walk the walk. But I didn't know a whole lot that then, you know. So that's my defense for that. But I, I strongly encourage women to, to take a couple of years, see a PT understand their body and how it works. And then moving forward the rest of your life, the puzzle pieces will fall into place for you.
0: Yes. So let's just overview again. You know, we're saying, hey, we need to get to the MD, see the pelvic PT, possibly try pessary and garments for a couple of years. And, you know, the sidebar to that is any of you know that, you know, like if, you know, you would have excessive bleeding or if there's things actually like hanging out past the vaginal vault opening that may not work for you. And, and, you know, I think it's good what you said, these pessaries, you have to try them. You have to work them into your lifestyle. You have to figure out, Hey, are they going to be a component, whether that's garments and the pessaries, maybe you're utilizing them only during your higher fitness levels. Maybe you're not utilizing them every day, but you're trying to see like, will they help you? Uh one of my uh Euro out of UCLA years ago said, I just want every woman after she has her first baby for the first year to have estrogen on board just in a pessary, just to get everything to sit back up and stay where it needs to be. And I thought, Oh, that's a whole other you know what I mean yeah, yeah, process, yeah, yeah. right? Because yeah, because you know, she's just saying, Look, let's help everything. And then, you know, PT and getting their muscles back into position and doing a better job would work way better for all of us. So, I mean, there's definitely us being patient as well to like work through and maybe not jump right to surgical interventions. And, you know, talk to me a little bit because, you know, the data is not always great about surgical interventions either that many times people will have symptomology even afterwards. And I think that's why, you know, pelvic PT, us utilizing all these other timeframes to people to understand their body, right? Because some mm-hmm. people, even after really good surgical interventions, honestly, mm-hmm. you know, it looks good, but the structures are still not working well. So they still need PT
1: afterwards. Yeah, there's, that's the bottom line too. I, I, I think it's a huge value to have a PT valve post-surgery, huge, huge value. Realistically, I mean, of course the, the data for Surgical failure is 30% of women. Now that's really mucky data, really mucky, because we don't know how many of those are with that have had had a cystocel fix and then go back and have a rectal fix. Okay. That's repeat prolapse surgery. We don't know how many women went back to work too soon. I hear someone that are told to go back to work in two weeks. That's an issue. So there's a lot of, of issues behind the surgical failure part of it, the whole mesh versus no mesh. And and I'm a mesh person. I had transvaginal mesh for the system and rectal and native tissue for the uh, enteral cell. So, and I'm a success story. And, and on that side of the equation, we tell women that, that you have to, the most pivotal thing you could do is to find, do your homework, finding your practitioners, whether it's a urogyne or a gynecologist or a PT, any of them do your homework to know that they know their stuff and they're good. And, and, you're looking for patient feedback. Whenever you can find patient, patient feedback, that's priceless as opposed to just little stars. So again, it, it's uh, with the, the surgical side of the equation. Wait until you're sure that you want to move forward to surgery. Understand that there is never any 100% guarantee with any surgery. Understand that how well you behave yourself post-surgery makes a huge Huge difference in your outcomes long-term. It's like, well, I'll just do this this one time. No. When you're told no, no means no. You know, behave yourself. And so women often, we, we, we hear in our space, I shouldn't say often, but routinely we hear them at the two-week point post-surgery, they're freaking out because the bulge is back. Recognize that you have had major surgery. And then it takes time for those tissues to heal. And the first week you're kind of kicked back. You're on the couch. You're watching the boob tube. You're not doing a lot of stuff. And now the second week you're feeling better and you're up and moving around. So guess what? Those tissues are going to swell again. And that's not a bulge. It's bulging that your tissues are swelling, but that's not prolapse bulge that has come back. So the understanding of the whole big picture and, and, and not jumping to conclusions is a big deal. It, it's a value... Practitioners don't have time to do the big picture support. That's why there's nonprofits, that's our job to do that. I mean, you've got your your, your appointments with your patients and, and PTs spend a lot of time with their patients as opposed to the uh, physician side of the equation. You get more a bit larger time slot with yours. So when you're in and out of a doctor's office and, and if you get 15 minutes, that's a good day. They, they cannot answer all of those more detailed questions. They just don't have the time. They're not permitted to have the time. And, and so that's the value, for, again, where we come in, the support structure, and having practitioners refer their women to our space, where they are women from teens through end of life in every possible stage of the prolapse equation. We even have women in our space that have rectal prolapse, which is not pelvic organ prolapse. That's something totally separate. But often comes alongside pelvic organ prolapse. So having coming in and being able to post your questions or vent your anxiety, which happens all the time, is a great value to women. And, and just understanding that that this is a journey, this isn't a quickie one and done. Go to the doctor, get a fix, You know, pop an aspirin and you're all better. It doesn't work like that with prolapse. It's a, a very diverse condition. The fact that there's five types of prolapse. There's four grades of severity and women typically have more than one type of prolapse at once. Usually with me, it was three, two is extremely common. Three is pretty common as well. So the women that have got one type of prolapse are usually very, very, very young and they may have just had a baby. And and that's kind of more, that's that's cool. And and Ellis Daniels, they usually have more aggressive cases of prolapse like those of us that are older. So it's a journey. Just recognize it's a journey and you learn as much as you can along the way. And we do encourage women to, to share their journeys, not just in our forum, which is a closed, secure forum, but with women in your, in your world, your family and your friends to get the word out there. Because it's absurd at this point in time that women are still not talking out lot about pelvic organ prolapse. And it's 50% of women how come we're not talking about this? We talk about everything, you know, so that has to change. Hi.
0: Sherry, so will you just tell us the, the five of them that you're talking about? So our listeners cannot understand that there's five different ones and they cross over oftentimes. And I think that'll just help sort of people understand that a little bit.
1: Okay. The, the most common type is like the cystocele, which is your bladder. Your bladder drops down. And any of, these, any of these types of prolapse can come out the bottom end. There can be a rectal seal is your rectum, and that doesn't come out the rectal end. It does, that's rectal prolapse, which is not pelvic organ prolapse. It pushes into your vaginal wall, pushes out the vagina. It can be an enteral seal is your intestines. Now, those intestines are encased in a sac, and they sit above your pelvic cavity. But that sac, they sit in. Is open and they drop down. The actual intestines will drop down into that pelvic cavity and they can come any place. There's an open space in that pelvic cavity. So they can go behind the vagina or the uterus. They can go in front of the uterus and bulge out of the vaginal canal. It could be your uterus, which is extremely common. And your uterus literally, your, that organ literally comes out of your vagina. Worst case scenario is grade four and it's called procedentia. It's completely outside of your body. And vaginal vault prolapse is when you have a hysterectomy. And I don't understand why this happens at all anymore. When you have a hysterectomy, the vagina can cave in on itself. If it's not tied up at the top, you're removing the uterus. And now we have this vaginal canal here and it's going to go like this and come out the bottom end. If they don't tie up, stitch up the top, not really tie up, but stitch up the top of that vagina, that vaginal canal to make it stay up there where it's supposed to stay. I read, I've read anywhere between 30 something and 60 something percent of women that have hysterectomies, depending on where you are in the world, the top of the vagina is not secured. So that predisposes you to vaginal vault prolapse. And so again, those, that vagina itself comes out the bottom end. So women can have, again, um, I've heard of women having four types of prolapse. I don't personally know any that have. We have some in our forum. And again, three types of prolapse is relatively common. Two is very, very common. And so when you see pictures of that, I mean, you see the the, the vaginal opening and, and there's different types of shapes. They're all kind of the same color, but different shapes of the tissue, those are different kinds of prolapse that are picking out that vaginal opening, so.
0: Thank you. And she's kind of sharing with the grades, the grades, Sherry, just talk a second about the grades so people understand
1: when we're saying there's four okay. grades too. Grade, the grade one is the mildest, grade four is the most severe, and, and it depends on where those tissues that are bulging out, where they're sitting at, uh, compared to the, yeah, where the hymen would be at in that vaginal canal. So if they're pushing past that and they're just barely pushing past that, what happens is, God, I wish I had something I could show here. here this is your vaginal wall. And well, here. Let's do, it, let's do it this way. Okay. Here is your vaginal wall or your vaginal walls. And here, okay, they can barely see that knuckle. And that'd be like a grade one. And so now it's pushed out further. Now you're grade two. Now you're grade three. And like I said before, I was grade three. And so for me, what I saw was a, it was like the size of a walnut bulge coming out of my vagina. And if you're you're grade four with your uterus coming completely outside your body, well, now you're talking a whole organ. that's sitting outside your body. So you're talking to something that's like like that size coming out the bottom end. So I don't understand how any woman could have their uterus completely outside their body and not go to the doctor. That's <laughs> kind of shocking to me, but it happens. And I've actually asked urogynecologists how frequently they address procedentia, grade four uterine prolapse. It must be just once in a blue moon. And they all tell me all the time, which is, Shocking, just shocking. So understand that no matter what grade you're in, there are treatments that will help you. It's just a matter of getting that practitioner and and finding out uh, what tools you have to utilize to help heal yourself and recognize that it's going to be, this is a lifelong journey now. And you have to pay attention to your health, just like we do our breasts for the rest of our lives. You know, if you, if you're, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and all of a sudden you have a lump that you feel in your breast, you go to the doctor. That's what you're supposed to do and and get it addressed. And same thing with the prolapse. It's it's not life-threatening, but it's always hugely life-altering and it's in your best interest to stay on top of it sooner rather than later.
0: So Sherry, tell us in this next year, what are some of the things that you're working on to accomplish? I saw that you have an app that's in progress.
1: the app goes back a ways okay so we're not doing the app anymore. we had i was so disappointed with that i was working with the university on that and they they changed the lead person changed midstream and and lead person that took over the project was interested in pushing his own project and so it just it wasn't working out so we just set that aside but um what we are working on well i, I i've I'm in, in fact, we just in the position now of locking down the hotel. Our next big project is we are hosting a two-day women's health expo and it'll be taking place in August. And this is open to both patients and practitioners who provide public exams. So the vision is because there's such a shortfall in PLP curriculum provided to practitioners that do the public exams, we felt it was really important to open up this this opportunity to bring them into the picture as well. This will not be CME accredited, but it's a great, I know the best of the best in practitioners for presentations. And so we're covering all kinds of aspects of prolapse. But we're also going to intersect with those uh, comorbid coexisting conditions. And so we're we'll talking about all the things that that impact women. Obviously, menopause is a big deal with prolapse. Hormone levels drop and there's a huge intersect there. So that as an example, that's the kind of stuff we're digging into. Once we get past the basic prolapse stuff and and so we'll probably bring in some. I've got a list someplace of some, oh, all the, time. To- the problem is there's too many topics that <laughs> I have to pick and choose which ones I want, but there'll be each day, there'll be plenary sessions all day long. I anticipate a robust industry space so that women can actually see, palpate, discover, some of the treatment tooling that there is in this space. Each day we'll have two choices of lunch symposiums so that we have four options for industry to come in and give us the deep dive because the speeches are of by each practitioner are 15 minutes. A uh, lunch symposium is a good 45 minute deep dive into these different topics. And so each day we will have choices of two of them. So um, it's a work in progress right now. I've been tire kicking on this for the past six months, trying to find the venue that's going to be the fit that's going to work for what we want to do here. And, and I've talked to multiple practitioners who are providing some with the base speeches for us. And I'm excited. I'm so excited. I'm hopeful that it it really takes off, and this will be an annual event. We're doing live and virtual hybrid mm-hmm. events, so that those that are out of the country or even across the country uh, that want to attend will be able to attend. And I'm hopeful that will bring in lots and lots of women on the uh, virtual side of the picture too. So so we'll see where it goes. Fingers crossed. I'm a nervous (laughs) Nelly, but I'm very excited about it.
0: No, this is so important. And I think it's so wonderful that you're doing this and this awareness and this understanding because it affects so many avenues of a woman's life and and you know, if, if we don't talk about it, no one understands it. So we need right. to bring all the people together too to be able to do that because you know, I think I read, you know, emotionally, socially, sexually, their fitness level, their employment quality of life, all those things are affected if you and I have a pelvic organ prolapse. And it exactly. can destroy, yeah, it can destroy our life and we don't leave our home and suddenly we're more and more isolated if it's affecting so many avenues of a woman's life and knowing that the two main causes really are childbirth and menopause timeframes, hormonal changes, all of these things are so important for the next step of what we're doing. So I really, this is exciting. I think it's really important. I know this has been a lot of work for you to develop this association your blood sweat great
1: changed. we're like <laughs> a, little, a little crazy <laughs> little here and a gold is back up you know
0: <laughs> this is what exactly. happens right when you're exactly. doing, the, doing exactly. the things you love and doing all the. but i mean i think you know when you look at having a support group like this and a support um, foundation you know then it propels the information you know it, it forces the medical field to stand up it forces you know, like the, the actual, you know, patients or the clients that actually need the help, it, it provides a segue, right? Like, so there's all this interchange. And I think that's what we're after in women's health, right, is to get that interchange make the interchange happen because if we don't have the providers and you know the actual people we're serving actually sitting in the same room talking and having a conversation we're never going to get to where we where we need to go if we don't do that so i think there's something super empowering actually about having all those pieces together because you know when we're listening as medical people and then maybe we've had our own pelvic organ prolapse You know, we have a different opinion because we walked in that neighborhood, right? But what if you're talking about a provider who's never, you know, had a pelvic organ prolapse and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden is like, oh, I don't even know how to have those conversations, right? And I think what you're doing is helping, right, us learn on both sides of the table how to communicate better.
1: APOPs is absolutely the wagon wheel, the hub of the wagon wheel. And on each of the arms, there's, there's patients, there's practitioners, there's academia, research, industry, policy. And if we're not all working together, we're not moving forward. The intersect has to be fluid between all of these spaces. And it, it's not really, really fluid yet, but it's way, way, way better than it was back in 2008 and 2009 and so on. You know, and there was a point in time where I got left at a lot in the beginning. <laughs> a lot. You know, it's like. What's with this crazy <laughs> she thinks she's going to do? And they're not laughing anymore, you know, and, and watching how the whole wagon wheel has kind of got closer to gelling over the years has been a, an amazing journey to watch, to experience. And so we're getting there. We still have ways to go, but we're getting there. So,
0: so Sherry, I want to just talk to this because I think sometimes, you know, women make up 51% of the population. They make eighty to ninety percent of all the healthcare decisions. Why, still at this time frame in two thousand twenty-four, why are we the last on the list? Like, why don't we go? We're here. Our bodies say things. Why are we so last on the list? Tell me, your gut about this.
1: Because we just put everybody else and everything else first. It, it, that that's the nature of being women. It's like you know, I, I'm six months past due from my my pelvic exam, but. This child has to have this, get this for school. And this child needs this. And then my husband has it. We're always putting ourselves last on the list. And, and it's, it's valuable that we recognize how pivotal our health is to, as the substructure of everything else that has to be handled. But I don't know that that's ever gonna change. It's just, it's, it's innate, it's inborn. It's part of that women DNA s- soup, you know, that it just makes us that way. And just getting better about making the awareness more common so that women recognize the symptoms, so they understand what's happening, is a value. But I don't know if even that is going to until symptoms are pronounced, is going to make a woman go to take care of herself, just because everybody else comes first. That's just the so, way it.
0: So I say we start a movement once a month, this is what I tell everybody, pelvic checks checks once a month, you know, even if we can't do it on a daily basis, just like we do breast self-exams, I'm like, I am all after pelvic checks, right? Because I feel like once a month, you can get a mirror, stand up, lay down, look at it, look to see if it looks any different. I'm all after people looking at their skin, skin tag, moles, I mean, gynecological cancer, skin cancers in the region of the vaginal tissue and the mm-hmm. vestibule and the vulvular area are on the rise in the next 10 years because people were not in for their exams during COVID mm-hmm. like they should have been. Right. So all the all the data from, a, even just from a cancer perspective, externally tissue-wise is just on the rise like crazy. So us, like saying, hey, get your mirror, let's do a pelvic check. So I mm-hmm. think that needs to be the Next, park. I like have that. I like that mindset.
1: Yes, I like that a lot. And and, and even on um, just basically, I mean, how many women actually, before there's anything going on, have actually looked down there?
0: Nobody. Taking a mirror.
1: Nobody does I'm that. I going to tell you, nobody does that. <laughs> We've got to make that, yes, bold letters. Huge size, yes. That's a big a big thing. I like that once a month. Yep, just like the breasts. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, think about how long it took us just to get people to even think about doing breast exams or even mm-hmm. looking at things, and you know, kind of. It's no different in the floor. I can't tell you how many people in this last year, just well, I shouldn't say in twenty three, that literally all of a sudden and they were young women who literally, you know, had vulvo vaginal cancer stuff came up that was superficial tissue that they knew just didn't feel right. They'd never actually looked at it, but they, they could tell some just doesn't feel like it right. used to feel. And and I think that's just as much important, right? We're looking, we're seeing, we're, we're, we're saying, hey, it doesn't look and feel like it should look and feel. But if we never look at it, how do we know?
1: <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Is Oh, so that's what, yeah. It's like, hello. Oh, yeah. I gotta get over that whole, that whole, that whole. But again, the vagina stigma thing, it makes me crazy. It's like, I want and now there's so much no, with the sharing. censoring, the censoring stuff on Google and LinkedIn and, and made I'm just like, line them up, knock them all. You know, I, I tell them I'm a fargo, I'm knocking everything all of a sudden. <laughs> it, it's just, it's like, it's so upsetting. It's like, we're going backwards with the stigma stuff. It's like, it's people oh, no. get going to the whole AI and the coders and it's like, oh, okay. I'm not going there. be <laughs> all trash talk.
0: i know it's really tough because you know you got to use the names for things otherwise people don't even know what's going on i mean we got to teach people right right and that's really i think what your organization is doing i think that's what's so powerful i think that's what drew me to you to want to talk with you really because i felt like we need more people i mean 50 percent really of people might have a pop that is huge in our country i mean just alone so I just want to shout out to you, thank you so much for being with me today. If you want to find her, it's PelvicOrganProLaxSupport.org. This is Sherry Palm. She is the CEO and the founder. Thank you for all your blood, sweat, and tears. I'm serious. I know what it's like to be a founder. I understand your passion. I believe in what you're doing and you're making a difference. This beautiful wagon wheel, it's coming together. I'm super excited. I can't wait to hear about your August event. Get all those details out there and we'll blast them all around. So everybody knows, I think it's so important. The more we educate, the the more we teach, the more we change, right? Our country and women's health. And that's what we want.
1: Exactly. It's all about advancing women's health in the big picture. And I can't thank you enough for your time too, Sherry. it's, It's opportunities like this that help fan the flames and it, cooks the juice and makes everything go wider. So it's priceless. Absolutely. It's priceless. It's, it's all good. All good.
0: Oh. Thank you. I love it. I'm so glad I got to be in person. I felt like I kind of already knew you through all the little.
1: <laughs> you know. the like, thing. I'm when, when, when you, when you hang out where we hang out and it's like, okay. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. You <laughs> only I'm scanning on LinkedIn, scanning on LinkedIn. It's like, oh wait, this one you have to check. <laughs> so all good stuff.